you would, turn back with me in your copies of God's Word to the last scripture reading that we had, Zephaniah in chapter 3. Our text this evening is just the 17th verse. Zephaniah 3 and verse 17. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. Before we come to the text, friend, as we come to the close of our communion season, I think it's appropriate for you and I to to ask ourselves a basic question, and that is, what are the temptations that I will face as I leave leave this season? Anytime we leave the ordinances of the gospel, whether it's the preaching of God's word or or any other ordinance, you and I should expect temptation. Uh, You and I should expect that perhaps we'll be tempted uh, to leave and to forget what we've heard from God's word. But what is that particular temptation that you and I may face as we leave the Lord's Supper, as we leave this communion season? Friend, I would suggest to you that one of the most poignant, most powerful temptations that you and I will face is to forget what was signed and sealed in the table. By that I mean that you and I will leave all of those covenant blessings that are there signed and sealed to us according to Christ's institution to leave them there and not to take them with us as we ought to in our place of work, education, and so forth. Our text this evening, the 17th verse, really embodies for us what is communicated to us through the Lord's Supper. What is the ground of our redemption? And so I want us to meditate on that this evening as, as we leave this season and seek to, to continue to improve uh, those ordinances that we've enjoyed this morning. In order for us to look at this text, it's important for me to remind you what you have in Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a prophet called, contemporary to Jeremiah, in the reign of Josiah, king of Judah. In this way, Zephaniah, like Jeremiah, witnessed a reformation, a magisterial reformation, one that flowed from the chief magistrate, the prince, and filtered through society and the church. It was a genuine reformation in one respect. The externals of the worship of God and the government of God's people seemed to be corrected in ways even Hezekiah before him hadn't achieved. But in another way, this reformation obviously was deficient. The externals looked wonderful, but within, the prophet Jeremiah shows time and again, there was still that self-same defection, now just with a veneer of holiness. That was the context to which our prophet was called. But strikingly, unlike Jeremiah, the entirety of this prophecy is not devoted to the work of reminding God's people that reformation must be deeper. No, Zephaniah's focus is far more forward. He's thinking primarily of the time to come. He sees exile, and then he sees return. He sees things like what you have there in the second chapter of this prophecy. He sees a moment when 
Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. And then, then the coasts shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. What he sees there is that Judah will go into exile, and then that they will return. But there is something else here. One commentator, George Hutchison, puts it to us this way, about that very text, about Gaza being forsaken and Ashkelon a desolation, but then returned to the remnant of Judah. Hutchison says this, he says, it was partly, literally fulfilled at the return of the Jews from Babylon and will be further done when the Lord saveth all Israel. Another commentator, contemporary, says this, he says, this is still further to be accomplished in the latter day when those parts of the world shall be possessed by converted Jews and Gentile Christians. In light of current events, I think that's a striking thing that you have in this text. But, but certainly, for our purposes this evening, what you and I are supposed to see here is that Zephaniah sees an exile and a return, but he sees something beyond that. He sees, as it were, the glory of the church as she comes out of exile from Babylon, but but behind that he sees a greater glory. He, He sees something that goes well beyond simply a return to the land, as we saw after the captivity was concluded. This dull focus is something that's confirmed to us in the text that we read in chapter 3. Verses 9 and 10, you have nothing less than the engrafting of Gentile nations. Something obviously not fulfilled. Something not fulfilled, not seen by Ezra, Nehemiah, or others who who occupied the land after the exile. No, this is a day that Zephaniah sees that is very much like the day Zechariah saw in our text that we looked at this morning. It's the day of the gospel. The day between the advents, the first and second of Christ. And friend, what you're supposed to see here is is even something beyond what we saw this morning. This is really the millennial glory of the church. This is that moment when all of Israel is now confessing the name of Christ and, and the Gentile nations themselves have been returned. That is really this third chapter for us. God's enemies subdued, and the church brought into her millennial glory and joy. And that brings us then to our text this evening, that 17th verse. In that moment, in that brilliant display of God's love and favor to Zion, favor to the church of God, Jew and Gentile, we find this, perhaps one of the most remarkable texts about divine love in all of the Old Testament. It's the only text in which we have Jehovah singing. The only text in which the Lord God describes himself thus, as he sets forward to his church a picture of divine love. It's a remarkable text. And what this text shows us is that in that age of glory, In her millennial glory, the church will have a greater and more sensible experience of these very things. That she will know in a way greater than she's known before that the Lord indeed is her God. And the banner that he set over her is one of deep, deep love. That's our text this evening. 
And so, friend, we can't forget that the millennial glory of the church is in view here. But I want us to focus less on the manner, less on how these things are communicated to the church in that future age. And I want us to focus more on what, or if you will, the matter that's in view in this text. Because that, friend, remains the same for the church of God through the ages. The matter is divine love. And what this text teaches us then, and this is our theme this evening, is that the Lord delights in loving his people. The Lord delights in loving his people. A friend, you could, I suppose you could say that I'm being a bit verbose there. Could you not just say that, that the Lord loves his people? Would that not be sufficient? A friend, in one sense, of course, that's a theological truth. But, but on the other sense, this text is saying also something so much greater. The, the text has in view something beyond that. And that's the thing that I want us to focus on this evening, especially as we leave a communion season in which we have signed and sealed to us the very divine love that is so poignantly described for us in our text. Friend, I want us to look, first of all, at how this is manifest in God's purpose of love toward his people. His purpose. We're told here, it is the Lord thy God that is speaking, that dwells in Zion, and that he will rest in his love. And I want you to notice, friend, first of all, that The prophet has in view here, Jehovah, thy God. That is, not God as your creator, though of course he is, but Jehovah as he is your great redeemer. This is God as he comes to his people in covenant. This is that special relation that only exists between God, his people, and himself through Christ. This is a relationship between not just creature and creator, but between redeemed and redeemer, between savior and the saved. And what does he say? He says that he will rest in his love. And striking there, literally the word is he will be silent. And and there are so many things that that I think legitimately could be taken out of that phrase. But at the very least, what this communicates to us is that he will be complacent in his love. Perhaps that's a word that's fallen out of use. The sense, the sense behind this text is, if you will, he's contented and even delights in his loving purposes toward his people. In other words, he makes here no, no disturbance, offers no argument. He rests in his love for his people. And friend, what this teaches us is that the Lord indeed is pleased to make sinners, his people, objects of love. He's pleased to do so. You see this in in two very familiar texts. You remember Christ's words to his congregation. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Words I think we read over far too quickly. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's not only, as Christ says here, that that he will give you the kingdom. But the sense is that the Father delights to do so. I'll take another text, for example. Even the one that we read from Ephesians 1. He says, 
There the apostle says, we were predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Again, words we could read over very quickly. But this is, this is a very pregnant theological statement and one that we ought to unpack just briefly. Friend, what you see here is that we were predestinated. That is, it was God's purpose, his loving purpose, that we should be redeemed. But then he says this, it was according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. I want you to notice what the apostle is emphasizing there. He's emphasizing the freeness of this grace. He could have simply said we were predestinated to redemption, but he doesn't. He goes further and he reminds us that the one who predestinated is the sovereign and uncoerced God. The God who works his will. And friend, what this text then teaches us is the very same thing our text, Zephaniah 3.17, teaches us. Paul is saying that the one who is sovereign, who cannot be coerced in anything, has chosen you, and if he has chosen you, it was because he delighted to do so. You may say these things are are really straightforward, but friend, allow me to illustrate them to you in in a way that, that perhaps we don't think of too often. It's one thing for us to say that God loves his people. But it's something else to say that God delights to love his people. Take an earthly example just for instance. Friend, if you've ever encountered anybody who's been a victim to domestic abuse, you might see what I'm, what I'm driving at here. You'll find somebody perhaps, who, a spouse or a child, who's been taken out of the home in a moment of crisis, their life threatened. And you work with that person for a time and, and you, try to, you try to lead them to see that, that, that they needed to be taken out of the home for their own good and, th- and that the love that they thought that this person had for them is not really love at all and, and that they, they, ought, they ought for their own good out of a Sixth Commandment obligation abstain from going back to that context. And then you come to that point, maybe months later, that spouse, that child, they can't resist. But they go back to the one that would harm them. And you say to them, you, you, you pull them as it were by, by the shoulder and you say, listen, don't you realize that this person is only going to harm you? Don't you realize that this person is only going to destroy you if they can? And that person, more often than not, will turn around to you and say, I know but I love them. And then you, you turn around to that person and you say, but, but they don't love you. They say, I know, but I must go back. Well, friend, what I want you to recognize is that that's an example of somebody who loves a person, and we could debate whether or not that's a biblical definition of love. That's not my point this evening. That's a person who loves another, but they can't delight in the fact that they love them. In our text, and in the text that I've just cited, we're told expressly that God not only loves, but delights to love his people. He delights in his loving purposes for his own. He rests, as Zephaniah says, in his love. Friend, this is a staggering doctrine, is it not? 
And you and I, we, we need to wrestle with this because you and I, as we leave a communion season, this will be the kind of thing that we are tempted to leave at the table. Tempted not to think too much on because, to put it very directly, friend, our unbelief at this point intervenes. I want you to remember, friend, that when you go back to the Garden of Eden and the first temptation that Eve faced, it wasn't. It wasn't. Who is God that... Who, who does he think that he is that he can make such commands of you? Satan doesn't come initially and, and tempt Eve to doubt the sovereignty of God, the majesty or the right of God. But our first parents faced the temptation that God was good. Our first parents faced a temptation that suggested to them that God was begrudging. That though God had blessed Adam in a way that was far above the lesser creatures, though He had given him so many tokens of His goodness, His loving kindness, that nevertheless, in the heart of God, if you will, there was still this miserly, this, this unwillingness to give to man something good. I want you to know that was the first temptation, and man fell. And friend, the kind of thing that's described in our text will be the very thing you and I are tempted not to believe. That God actually loves His people and He does not do so begrudgingly. That He delights in His loving purposes for His people. And in that, He is utterly uncoerced. Friend, what you're supposed to see here then Christian, you're supposed to see here that the love that God bears toward you is unlike any other. And I know that can be taken in a very trite way. Allow me to, allow me to explain further. What this text teaches us is that you and I, we ought to be content. We ought to be utterly content in that our God loves us so. Because what this text teaches us is that no father has ever loved his child as much as God loves his people. No spouse has ever been loved by her husband. No friend has ever been loved by another. And God loves his people. He delights friend to love his own. And surely then you and I, we have missed the mark at some point if we grow anxious over the thoughts of others with regard to ourselves. Friend, the greatest acts of love, the best husband, the best father, the best friend, can only love you with an alloyed, a stained love at his very best. This text tells us that God loves his people deeply, delights to do so. And this text, of course, reminds us that the one who loves is Jehovah, in whom there is no shadow of turning, the one who is sinless, whose love is unalloyed. He delights in his loving purpose. We also see in this text that he delights in the performance of this love. 
You see that in this. He says that God is in the midst of thee. He is mighty. He will save. And that is the performance of his love. What you're supposed to see here, friend, is that God dwells then in his church through his son, through the ministration of his spirit, in a gracious way. Yes, God is omnipresent, but in this sense, you and I are supposed to see that it's his gracious presence that's in view. And out of that gracious presence, God saves. And all of that flows from this love for his people. He delights in the performance of his love. He delights in the accomplishment of this redemption. Again, friend, familiar text to us. God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to notice that word commended there is the word placard. It's as though he says here in this text that Christ was placarded so that we might see the love of God. But friend, what I want you to notice, again, another familiar text, is what is, what is embodied in that presentation of divine love. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. James Durham on that text, I think he opens it up in a way that that I've seldom heard. When we read in Isaiah 53 those words, he says, you're supposed to see there that God loved the salvation of sinners so well that he was content to seem to ignore his own son's cries and tears for a time, to perform satisfaction that was due to justice. And he did this with goodwill and pleasantly. He delights in the performance of his love, even to the bruising of the son. He delights in the application of this work. Paul in Ephesians 2 puts it this way, We all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even while we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. He delights in the accomplishment of redemption. He delights in its application. And friend, what this text teaches us, and we'll see this in our next point, he delights in the consummation of this gracious work as well. What this text teaches us, friend, is that the Lord God was pleased. You who are saved, you who have taken hold of Christ, this text teaches us clearly that he was pleased to cross those mountains, to transverse the many bathers that divided you and him, even to the point of his son's bruising. And he crossed so much of your own heart, its coldness and its callousness, By his spirit, he came over all of that distance that he might quicken you in his son when you had no thought for him except one of enmity. And what this text teaches us is that in all of that, he delighted. 
It's not simply that he delighted in the, pro, in, in the end. But friend, he delighted to go all of that length for his own. That brings us then this evening to this perception of his love. And really, friend, this text aims principally at this point. We're told here that he will rejoice over thee with joy, with singing. Now, singing in this text, you're to remember, is the vocalization of something that's internal. It's, it is, as it were, the, the expression, uh, the, the, the non-verbal expression, as it were, of the heart. Uh, and friend, what you see here is, is that very idea right throughout the Old Testament. This idea that song communicates one's inward disposition. Uh, one example in Isaiah 62 would suffice. It says, as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Uh, obviously, that's something that's vocalized. But if you move to Jeremiah 7, he says this, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, and the voice of the bride. Meaning that all of those things were vocalized elements of one's genuine joy, one's genuine delight. And so what this text is teaching us through this anthropopathism is, is that you and I are to see that in the millennial glory, the sensible love of God will be more manifest. Up to that point, Yes, we know the love of God, but it will be known in a greater way when the church enters that period of joy and exaltation. All of that's true, and friend, I, I, I think it's well worth our meditation, but I want us to move a little bit beyond that. Because while this love will be more manifest, as it were, more sensible to the church in that age, it will still be even more sensible in the consummation. The very elements that we find in our text will be even more brilliantly known to the church on the final day. And what this text teaches us, friend, then, is that in the millennial glory and in the time to come, and even, friend, as we have this text in front of us, we're to remember that the Lord delights that his people enjoy that love. He would express it like one would express their joy in song. He will make it manifest. And so that his people would enjoy it. This is taught to us right throughout the scriptures, that God has an interest that his people would know and enjoy his love. This is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with the all fullness of God. This is what he prays that the Ephesian Christians might know. And of course, even in in the benediction of 2 Corinthians 13, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Friend, he's not there seeking to say that the decree could be somehow altered. No, God's loving purposes stand. What he's praying there for is that they would know more deeply the love of God as they would the grace of Christ and the communion of the Holy Ghost. Friend, what this text teaches us is that then God delights in his love for his people, but he also delights that his people would know that love. This is put to us quite powerfully in John 17. Christ there says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that 
they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. Thou hast loved me before the foundation of the world. A friend, that, that text has something, something tied intimately to ours this evening. John 17, Christ prays in earnest that his people, he says, I will that they be with me and that they would see my glory. But friend, when this occurs, what does this show God's people? It shows them many things, but I would submit to you it shows us what you have in this text. What it shows us here, friend, is that such a son was given. Such a glorious son. Such a one who is altogether lovely was the son who was given to redeem you. Placarded as the clearest picture of divine love to his people. Friend, you and I, our hearts ought to melt with our dim views of Christ, seeing that in him we see the love of God. But when that dimness fades away, when we see his glory as Christ prays that we will in John 17, what we'll see there even more clearly is that our hearts should melt all the more because we see the glory of the one who was given. As we close, friend, what you have in this 17th verse of Zephaniah 3 is a text that tells us that God delights that his people would enjoy his love. What you and I are to remember, friend, is that the full enjoyment of that is in the time to come. The church expresses herself in Song of Solomon 2. I sat under his shadow with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. This is expressing, of course, a sensible knowledge of the love of Christ in this life. But I want you to notice her response. Stay me with flagons. Comfort me with apples for I am sick of love. A friend, there's nothing negative in that text. Only this that you and I are supposed to see here in her pilgrimage, friend, the love of Christ can overwhelm. It will in one sense overwhelm in the time to come. But in this time, friend, you and I are to remember that these these great effusions of divine love, well, friend, they, well, we are simply too weak to enjoy the fullness now of what we'll enjoy in the time to come. We will be like the bride, if indeed we have even just a foretaste of the things that are communicated to us in this text. As we close, friend, this text asks us a basic question. And it is, do you believe? I said to you at the beginning that our meditations this evening are are really to stave off particular temptations as we leave the Lord's Supper. What you have in our text is the very substance of what is signed and sealed. The, The epitome of divine love manifest in Christ as he's clothed in the gospel. That's what our text is showing to us. That's what's signed and sealed to us in the sacrament. 
And yet, friend, I would submit to you that our greatest temptation is to go tomorrow, to wake up, to go about our daily routine, and to leave all of this behind us. Friend, we can't do that. I mean, if you take just this text for a moment and you contemplate its depth, you recognize how foolish it would be to go to the table and say that, that I believe that, that Christ indeed is mine and that, that that very love that is described in our text this evening is born toward me from Almighty God. And then to go about our day tomorrow anxious about the world, Anxious about others. Anxious, as it were, that, that, that the things of this world would, would be our, our principal hope and, and, and our delight. Friend, it doesn't make sense. If we indeed are the objects of this love we believe ourselves to be, and we leave a table that signs and seals these things to us, Friend, we ought to go into the world of people who carry these things with us so that it changes us. But for our comfort, friend, what you and I have in this text is nothing less than, as it were, a curtain drawn. Not a curtain drawn. A curtain pulled back so that we might see in a small form what the people of God enjoy for everlasting years. That God delights to love his people. And that he delights that they themselves would enjoy that love. And so, friend, as we wait in this pilgrimage, as we leave the wells of salvation on yet another Lord's Day, friend, our exhortation is to labor. Labor, as it were, to get an early heaven, to know more of the truth of this text, even in this life, but also, friend, you and I are to labor, knowing that this is not our home. We're to labor in such a way as that we hold a very light grasp on this life, because the glory that's to come, the Lord's song in this text, will be enjoyed more fully hereafter. May the Lord give us such dispositions as we live for him. Amen.